0: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Thursday, February 15th. A Liberal MP charged with defending Canada's foreign policy is recorded, criticizing his government's foreign policy. Coming up, what Rob Oliphant thinks the government bungled on the Israel-Hamas war front. Plus, Russian nuclear weapons in space. We'll ask Defense Minister Bill Blair about this emerging threat to national security. And more questions about GC strategies and why it received tens of millions of dollars in government contracts. The Power Panel is here for its take on the controversy. (music) Russia is trying to develop space-based nuclear weapons. This according to several reports out of the United States. The White House confirmed these reports about the emerging Russian capability this afternoon.
1: While I am limited by how much I can share about the specific nature of the threat, I can confirm that it is related to an anti-satellite capability that Russia is developing. I want to be clear about a couple of things right off the bat. First, this is not an active capability that's been deployed. And though Russia's pursuit of this particular capability is troubling, there is no immediate threat to anyone's safety. We are not talking about a weapon that can be used to attack human beings or cause physical destruction here on Earth. That said, we've been closely monitoring this Russian activity and we will continue to take it very seriously. President Biden has been kept fully informed and regularly informed by his national security team, including today.
0: This news comes as NATO defense ministers gather in Brussels. On the agenda, support for Ukraine and alliance defense spending. Bill Blair is Minister of National Defense. We spoke with him prior to the White House, confirming reports on this emerging Russian threat. Minister, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you very much, David.
0: I have to start with these big headlines we saw coming out of the United States yesterday. Security warnings that Russia is trying to maybe put a nuclear weapon in space uh, to use against satellites. We are told that Canada was briefed on this. What can you tell Canadians about what Russia is trying to do in space?
1: Yeah, what I what I can say is that we're very fortunate in our five eyes relationships particularly with the United States we regularly receive um, intelligence updates from from our allies um, however that the, there is obviously concern within the United States about this information um, and I'm, I'm assured that additional clarification will be coming for, forthcoming from them we are obviously in discussion with 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 our allies, and 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 very satisfied with the sharing of, of, of the information, but I I think it's most appropriate to leave it to them to comment on, on on their intelligence and and the response to it at, at, at least at the present time.
0: The report suggests the weapon is being developed, but hasn't actually been deployed. I mean, how imminent is this threat from your perspective? How worried is Canada? How worried are the allies there at the NATO meeting in Brussels?
1: I think the issue is a serious one, but at the same time, um, we are relying on intelligence we're receiving from our our American allies. I think it's most appropriate to leave it to them, um, to to make it a a, a public disclosure with respect to that intelligence. Um, I'm very grateful, though, that we have a relationship with our Five Eyes partners, and in particular the United States, where we work very collaboratively together and we share information, and and we're working together on on that and many other issues. You've been meeting there with
0: more than 50 countries uh, in Belgium who are all supporting Ukraine's defense in one way or another. You've announced $60 million to help with the F-16 project they're trying to do. You've announced money for uh, the Canadian forward presence um, in in the Baltic states. The pipeline of global aid, though, from the United States in particular, uh, seems to be in jeopardy with what's happening in Congress, the inability to get the $60 billion aid package through. How worried is the alliance about the U.S.'s continued direct military support for Ukraine when even the Secretary of State says they're running out of
2: bullets?
1: Well, I can tell you, first of all, the the, the, the the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, which is led by Secretary Austin and the Secretary of Defense from the United States. We met yesterday and, and there was a very robust discussion about what all of the allies and, and that are uh, supporting the Ukraine, all of the work that we all must collectively do together in order to make sure that they have access to the military su- supplies and other supports that they require. Um, I will tell you, I personally have been very impressed, as you know, Canada um, was among the first countries and stepped up uh, perhaps uh, in in a a very leading way in support of Ukraine at at the very outside of hostilities. But the contributions made by all of our NATO allies have been extraordinary, steadfast and resolute, and and the discussion that we've just had over the past two days, um, it was very clear that, that all, of the, all of the allies understand the need to do more, and we're, we're all endeavoring to do more and to act more quickly, and at the same time, I, you know, I, I want to also acknowledge the leadership of the United States in leading that that effort to support Ukraine, but also in, in the extraordinary supports that they have previously supplied. There are, is a political process obviously taking place in the United States. I think we all understand that. But but I uh, we've been able to reassure Ukraine, and, and I would want to reassure Ukrainian Canadians. The alliance that supports Ukraine remains strong and resolute, and we are doing all that is necessary to make sure that we get them the, the munitions, the equipment, and all of the military supports that they require in their in their fight against Ukraine. And there was also very important discussions about other steps. That, and we think there's a real opportunity to continue to build a bigger bridge between NATO and, and Ukraine, um, and, and to learn from their experiences in Russia um, that that commitment is is also very strong among our NATO allies the us of course
0: the US has undoubtedly uh, been the biggest contributor to now, militarily. But now we have this process in Congress, um, Minister, that is increasingly being steered by Donald Trump as he seeks a Republican nomination. And, you know, without congressional approval, the aid dries up. So I, I just, what does that mean for Ukraine's capacity to defend itself? Because while Canada has done what it can, it cannot rival the United States. Big countries like Germany have said they can't fill that gap what happens if the americans can't get through this impasse
1: no, i don't think at the present time the discussion among our nato allies and the, all of us who are supporting ukraine suggests that that we can fill that gap the united states as as you've indicated has been an outstanding leader and has been very very strong in their support of ukraine and we we are very hopeful and 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 remain confident that that will actually take place But I can also share with you among all of our European allies that the the support for Ukraine is resolutely strong. And and what we are seeing is is all of the members are stepping up and and making new announcements and new supports. Um, There's also recognition that um, we we, we have to look at military production um, in in Europe and in North America. And and it's it's work that's ongoing in, in both Canada, the United States and throughout Europe. Um, to increase the increase the productions of air, de- air missile defense systems, artillery munitions, and other munitions that are needed uh, by Ukraine, there's also, I think, been an, an initiative that's been very important, David, that I would highlight. In that, the, and it was led by the, le- the leadership of the United States in the, in the development of what we call capability coalitions that have enabled countries to come together to work collectively on particular issues around such things as armor, artillery, air defense systems, and, and aircraft to enable us to, to work more collaboratively together, cooperatively together, and to leverage the power of all those different relationships and, and different cap- capabilities right across Europe and North America in, in order to support Ukraine. Th-
0: that American-led initiative, I-, I wonder if the leadership of America should change. Uh, what happens there. I, I know you've been uh, careful not to overreact to what Donald Trump has said uh, about encouraging Russia to do whatever it wants for, for NATO members who don't hit the 2% spending target. Uh, but I wonder what the reaction to those comments were at the meeting in Brussels. I'm Surely it must have been discussed.
3: Well,
1: and, and let me assure you, I, I, I think we, we've all been, I think, reassured by the incredible strength of, of, of leadership among our American allies, particularly over the last two years of the K- Ukraine war, they've really stepped up and and they are obviously a leading voice um, and, and, and in, in in NATO itself. and And so I, th- I think we all draw strength and encouragement from that long track record of extraordinary leadership from our American allies. and And I think everyone understands political processes and elections are taking place and that there will be you know comments and rhetoric that take place within those elections. And at the same time, we've got decades of of incredible support for, for NATO and for world peace from our American allies, and, and we'll continue to rely on that.
0: Minister, if I, if I can ask you about one other thing. Uh, you were the public safety minister when the Arrive Can app was launched, and when it was announced. The RCMP is now investigating things. I'm sure you've seen the Auditor General's report about what happened there. Why wasn't the department and all the departments involved with this more on top of what was happening with with, with ArriveCAN? How did this happen?
1: Well, first of all, when when ArriveCAN was originally proposed, it, it had nothing to do with the pandemic. It was actually well before the pandemic. Its intention was to digitize and make more efficient the arrival process to where where a traveler requires a light touch that digitally we'd be able to provide that touch. It was actually intended in its initial iteration as a significant enhancement to to managing uh, people's arrival and and other countries have done very similar things. Um, During the pandemic, obviously that there were other decisions with respect to its application But at the same time, nothing in the pandemic relieves people of the responsibility to follow our rigorous procurement processes to make sure that that those processes are followed and things are done in the right way. Um, There has obviously been a review done by by uh, CBSA and now by the Auditor General, which highlights that many of those processes perhaps weren't followed as rigorously as they should. And I know there's also an investigation by the RCMP, and 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 I think it's entirely appropriate where people did not follow the rules that there be a, a system of a strong system of accountability to reassure the Canadians that 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 things are that we have rules in place and that things need to be done right. And when people have broken those rules, that there is accountability.
0: C- clearly, uh, the, the rules should have been followed. But I wonder, should there have been more oversight from your department? Or was CBSA just allowed to do this on its own? Because as the cost grew and the contracts kept growing in number and volume, why wasn't anybody uh, in public safety or anywhere else saying, what's going on here? We need an explanation.
1: Well, and, and, and unfortunately that information and, and what was taking place there with, with those contracts and expenditures was not reported uh, to, to, to my ministry or to uh, PSPC, and, and, and there, it's one of the things that the, the Auditor General's report has highlighted, and it's one of the things that I think it needs to be rigorously reviewed, and I believe that review both at CBSA and at Public Safety and at PSPC is taking place now, plus there are other processes and investigations taking place to ensure that when, where rules were broken. People were held to account.
0: Okay, I I just want to make sure I understand that as a final question. There there was no follow-up because you were never told? It was never told to your department or to you as minister that things were growing and the costs were going up? It just wasn't explained?
1: Well, frankly, that information was not not shared with 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 us. I, we were I, the original uh, application of of arrive can was presented by the president of CBSA um, and approved. But but in its, few, its its subsequent iterations, particularly in response uh, to the situation in the pandemic, um, that information did not come back before the ministry. Okay,
0: Defence Minister Bill Blair, thanks so much for your time today. Of course. Former U.S. President Donald Trump will face his first criminal trial next month. The case relates to accusations that Trump paid off an adult film star to keep their alleged affair a secret, so it would not influence his 2016 campaign for president. Jury selection will begin on March 25th. It is one of four criminal prosecutions Trump is facing, and the CBC's Chris Reyes has more from New York.
4: Just as Trump's indictment last April on this case was a historic one, making him the first American president to face criminal charges. Today's decision just as noteworthy as it sets into motion the first of four criminal cases that Donald Trump is charged in. March 25 will be jury selection, that decision handed down very quickly by Judge Juan Mershon. Soon after, he denied uh, the motion to dismiss this case altogether made by Trump's attorneys. And despite repeated objections from Trump's lawyers, the judge put his foot down and very quickly attended to the logistics of the trial in March. There was a lot of discussion about how to choose an impartial jury given the media attention that surrounds Donald Trump and the unprecedented nature of trying a former American president. Now, while the judge was able to shut down Trump's lawyers inside the courtroom, there was nothing stopping Trump from airing his grievances outside the courtroom.
5: There was no crime here at all.
1: This is just a way of hurting me in the election because I'm leading by a lot. We're leading by numbers that nobody's ever seen before. And they figured this is their way of cheating this time.
4: The prosecution pointed out to the judge that Trump repeatedly tries to delay these trials to evade accountability and argued that the fairest way to conduct the trial is to make it quick. This one is expected to last six weeks. Chris Reyes, CBC News, New York.
0: Liberal MP Rob Oliphant ripped into his government's policy on the war in Gaza. He did it in a phone call with a constituent. A recording of that phone call was provided to CBC News. Oliphant criticized his government's response to South Africa's genocide case against Israel before the United Nations top court.
6: So I I think that I would not have done what the government did. I advised the government not to do that. Uh, Because I think it was misunderstood and I knew it would be misunderstood as not agreeing with South Africa's case Um, and that could be perceived as not believing they should bring the case and I'm simply saying no no one will understand the nuance of it It doesn't necessarily mean we agree or disagree with the case. We believe it has the right to bring it. So I think that was a communications disaster Um, and uh, we should simply say we're following the case.
0: The CBC's Evan Dyer broke this story, and he joins me now. So, Evan, uh, we've heard Liberal MPs disagree with the government on this before, but he's a parliamentary secretary for the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, okay. so this is a, a very different sort of thing, and that is not the only uh, thing he had to
5: say on this report. No, reporting. no. Actually, that's a fairly mild criticism compared mm-hmm. to some of the others. You know, the constituent who called him uh, had a, a few issues she wanted to talk about, Then one of them was the ICJ, uh, but another one was the defunding of UNRWA, and that was probably the main concern, and he talked a lot about that, and he was... Uh, very critical of that decision, uh, both the way that it came about, uh, motives behind it, and the effect that he thinks it's likely to have. Let's just listen to a little bit of what he said about the defunding of UNRWA.
6: I do believe there are, I understand there are allegations of 12 or 13 I've heard different numbers. Um, UNRWA employees uh, who are involved in the, uh, the massacre on uh, the, the uh, 7th of October is horrendous. They should not be. However, you don't stop aid to Palestinians in Gaza because of 12 or 13 employees out of 13,000. It drives me crazy. Um, it is opportunistic. Um, it is uh, unfair. And it is maligning the operation of a UN organization um, that is doing uh, not perfect work. No, there's no organization that's made of human beings that's perfect. Under it has its faults. But it is the best we have for education, for medical care, for food, all of those things.
5: So, you know, he's, he's criticizing it there for, for its motives, but he also talked about the effect of it. And there he really contradicted the government quite directly because mm-hmm. the government has said that it will be able to replace the money that it was giving to UNRWA and channel it through other UN agencies like the World Food Program and so on, uh, whereas what, what Rob Olifant said on this call is, no, there's only one agency that can be relied on to distribute aid effectively, and that is UNRWA, and he said that if you try to circumvent UNRWA and work through other agencies, you're going to have to end up using the exact same people, the same individuals, uh, who, you, who have already been criticized working in UNRWA, because those are the people on the ground in Gaza. So, uh, he criticized that, and he said that, that these issues had led to him to question whether he could continue in his role, that many times he'd considered leaving, uh, but that he'd been persuaded to stay because he could do more good on the inside than on yeah,
0: the h- outside. His criticism there, it, it, it mimics exactly what aid groups have been saying and contradicts, While well, like Minister Hussein said when he's on the show, that they'll just find the other groups, and they'll be able to get it in, and they just say they can't do it at scale. So it, there by, is a disagreement. That's
5: right. And by the way, I should mention that this is a person who actually knows a lot about the issue. I mean, this is someone who's traveled frequently to the Middle East, has visited Anwar in more than one country, Mm -hmm. knows the former director of the UNRWA in Gaza as a close personal friend, a person who was thrown out of Gaza by Hamas, by Hamas. Hamas. So, you know, he's he's speaking with a fair amount of experience, certainly when you compare him to some of the other people in the government. So,
0: you know, uh, Rob Oliphant has a reputation as a fairly thoughtful guy on a lot of these issues, and you can see he's struggling uh, with this. Uh, But, you know, a a private conversation was recorded and leaked without his knowledge. What did he have to say when, when you spoke to him about this?
5: Well, he's not happy. I mean, he had the, the expectation that this would be a private conversation. And, um, you know, he also, I think, is concerned that MPs won't be able to speak as frankly with their constituents. You know, it's something that crossed my mind when I, when I published this story. This mm-hmm. is a concern I think that anyone would have. I mean, at the same time, you know, you can hear in that call, R- Rob Oliphant sounds like a very humane person, a person of conscience who's struggling with real issues. He's not talking in platitudes. Uh, You know, I should say actually something else about this call, which is important, because the government has been accused, and we saw that today from all the opposition parties, of having different messages for different constituencies, and having sort of a two-faced approach, wanting different messages to be heard. Uh, In this case, he was on a call with a constituent who's clearly pro-Palestinian, and no one else was listening as far as he knew or ever would, but he did defend the Jewish community on this call as well, and he made the point that Palestinian organizations, pro-Palestinian organizations should do more to denounce what Hamas did on October 7th, that they should call for the release of hostages, Israeli hostages, as well as calling for a ceasefire, uh, you know, he was, I, I don't think he could be accused of, of, of that. Whether or not the rest of the government could, I don't think he could be accused of that. On
0: this right. But, but here's the challenge, because he is the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, yeah. and he's been on this program. He stands up in question period and defends government policy. Right. And his views, obviously, on UNRWA and, and, and the ICJ case, he's obviously out of out of, lo- out of alignment uh, right. with the cabinet and the government there so the prime minister was asked about this I mean is Rob Oliphant gonna stay as a parliamentary secretary what what's the reaction from the government there
5: it looks that way I mean we saw some reaction today from the prime minister he was asked about this and he's, in his first reaction to it he seemed to have a fairly tolerant view let's watch what he had to say about that one of the strengths of the Liberal Party uh, federally is that we have always had a strong number of people who feel uh, and who reflect the diversity of perspectives and views across the country. As the party that sits in the middle, of course, you know, the Liberal Party has difficulty with this issue that the Conservative Party doesn't have. Right. The NDP also really doesn't, either in that it's, most of its supporters are probably more on the Palestinian side. The Liberal Party is split in the middle. And so it's achieved this equilibrium in caucus, you know. And that makes it hard for the government to either promote or remove anyone who's now identified more or less with one side of this issue. without doing some balancing work on the other side. And I think that that's one of the factors from some Liberal MPs I've spoken to that may in- ensure that he keeps his job. But it's going to be hard because there's going to be opposition parties there. Next time that he defends the government in yeah. question period, they'll be saying, do you really believe this, Rob, or are you just being made to say
0: this? Yeah, this is the challenge, right, where, where the Liberals hold their seats, the makeup of their political base, and yeah. you've got people like Anthony Housefather, right, who are obviously yeah. on the other side of this issue from Rob Olyphant, who just promoted. Recently promoted, promoted. exactly.
5: Secretary. That's exactly yeah.
0: right. Okay, Evan, thanks so much. We appreciate it. That's the CBC's Evan Dyer. Thanks very much Liberal MP and Parliamentary Secretary Rob Oliphant ripped into his government's policy on the war in Gaza. He did it in a phone call with a constituent, and a recording of that phone call was provided to CBC News. Oliphant criticized his government's decision to dispend funding to a U.N. aid agency supporting Palestinians.
6: It drives me crazy. Um, It is opportunistic. Um, It is uh, unfair and it is maligning the operation of a U.N. organization um, that is doing uh, not perfect work. There's no organization that's made of human beings that's perfect under its faults, but it is the best we have.
0: Opposition parties say the contrast between Oliphant's private comments compared to his public defense of the government's position on the Israel-Hamas war undercuts the liberals' position
6: it's another example of how Justin Trudeau is a two-faced phony on the Middle East just like everything else.
7: He should be brave enough to say it publicly. It feels very much to me like a very liberal thing to say one thing publicly and to say a different thing privately.
6: Create the situation where nobody trusts, nobody listens to what Canada says. All
0: right, we're going to discuss this with the power panel. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. James Moore is a former conservative cabinet minister. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan NDP cabinet minister. And Jonathan Kalis is a former Quebec advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, Hello, gang. Jonathan, uh, I'd like to start with you. We know there's been a deep split in the Liberal caucus over the conflict between Israel and Hamas. They've held it together, but there is disagreement. What do you make of the Parliamentary Secretary for the Minister of Foreign Affairs saying he's thought about quitting his job over the government's positions on Palestinian support.
3: Well, I think this is, you know, just another example of that there are deep divisions in the caucus. Um, it's it's different because it's a Parliamentary Secretary. So uh, whatever his opinion is, he's supposed to be representing the government, the official line. And so it's all very nice to say we have differences of opinion within our caucus. We have this divide, but it's democracy and it's it's people sharing their opinions. That doesn't work when you hold a position. It's not a minister, but it's close enough and it's in the specific related file. So, you know, there will be no consequences. I can't imagine there being consequences because the outcry would be too great. But it is a continuation of the pitfalls of the liberal strategy from the beginning of this conflict, to try to be all things to all people. And what's really interesting, it struck me, uh, late this afternoon, I noticed a video going around on Twitter, or X, or whatever it's called, and of Rob Oliphant talking to a Palestinian woman uh, who was asking very sort of, uh, you know, direct questions, uh, upset about the government's policy, um, where he basically denounces a couple of his caucus colleagues, uh, calling them arrogant for Mm. accepting the ICJ um, uh, uh, sort of case and saying that, no, there's no genocide because it hasn't been proven, and my colleagues who say it's genocide are being arrogant and ridiculous in a very aggressive tone. So he's almost contradicting himself What he was caught uh, on this conversation uh, that, that came out today. So, you know, Lots of people have different opinions. The government seems to have people saying and representing different opinions, different opinions. And now you have Rob Oliphant himself demonstrating that he has different opinions.
0: Right. So, on that, on this recording, James, he, he says rhetorically to himself, Do I believe there's genocidal activity on the part of Israel? Probably yes, from what I have seen, is what he said there. Um, you know, I've interviewed Rob Oliphant a bunch of times, and he always seems like a, a really thoughtful guy, uh, you know, who grapples with difficult issues. But he is in a situation here where he stands in the House of Commons to defend the government's policy on this, and he's saying something completely different now, um, you know, in, in these recordings. I mean, how tenable is this for? for him going forward how does the government manage this do you think
2: it's not tenable the the clip package that you played at the front end of the segment was was perfectly put it well because everybody was correct rob oliphant was sincere in what he said and i believe him at his word pierre polyev was correct that this shows that when justin Trudeau leaves the world wide open for anybody to be a member of the liberal party and hold any views that you're going to get a multitude of views which leads canada's position to nowhere. the ndp are correct That if Rob Oliphant believes this, then he should have the courage of of his convictions and to say this publicly and to stand by his views. He's a thoughtful person and he should say what he says. I I, I assume that's why he ran for office. And the Bloc Québécois are correct that all of this leads to Canada having no position that is of any value in the world because we're all over the road when it comes to Prime Minister uh, Trudeau. Prime Minister Trudeau should also expect more of this, by the way, not just sort of leaked tapes and which I'm uncomfortable with, because the idea of having a private meeting and it gets recorded and people leak it and, and in a gotcha moment, that's not how these things should be done. It only leads to people being taking fewer meetings and being less transparent what their views are. That aside, Justin Trudeau should probably expect more of this, not just of leaked conversations, but actually when you're Nineteen points down in the polls across the country, twenty points behind Pierre Poliev and who's the best prime minister? Three to one net negatives. People in your in your caucus and parliamentary secretaries who are never going to become cabinet ministers, backbenchers who see the end of their political career more in front of them than and more of it in the rearview mirror than in front of it. These people are all going to start speaking out and taking choice positions that are closer to their heart than they are to their political self-interest. And so I think there because Justin Trudeau has such a aimless approach on the on the question of the Middle East, he's going to have more conflicts in front of him because he's handling it, I think, so poorly and so aimlessly in terms of where his moral compass is.
0: Yeah, uh, Andrew, uh, on the point of like the the leaked recording, I mean, this was something, you know, Evan and I talked about, and he said he sort of struggled with it, you know, because of of, of the nature of of the issues that James outlined, but it does show a contradiction between the public position and the private position, and that's the news value in it, and people may disagree, honestly, and we understand that, but I mean, what do you make of where this leaves things right now for Rob Oliphant and, and the Liberals?
7: Well, I think we should be clear that this shows a difference between where Rob Oliphant is and where the government is. I, mean, I think yep. he's been cons- you know, consistent, probably, in his position uh, inside and out of caucus. I mean, a couple of things uh, you know, I would just uh, offer is, uh, you know, politicians learn in, in Politician School 101 never say anything privately that you wouldn't be prepared to defend publicly. And so, you know, this assumption that somehow your private conversations, especially with activist uh, stakeholders and constituents, is not somehow going to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, read out uh, in public, uh, is a a bad assumption. Second piece, though, and I think this is where it's a bigger concern for the Liberals, is not that there's a diversity of opinion within the Liberal Party. I suspect there's a diversity of opinion within within each of the parties on this issue. The problem is that there's an old adage in, in politics that says, you hang together or you hang separately. Mm-hmm. And what they've decided in this case is they'd rather each hang separately than hang together as a caucus to try to defend the position. There was no, uh, no effort from what we could see and what I've seen on this to defend the government's position, to understand you know, where the government was coming from. It is very much now, it appears, every MP for themselves. And that's a desperate situation for a caucus to find itself in, in a governing party. It projects uh, to the public that they cannot... Uh, keep their own house in order and as such calls into question whether they can effectively govern and secondly I think it uh, calls into question just whether or not uh, you know this is a party that does have a you know a cohesive uh, governance structure internally to actually make decisions and to move forward
0: Shachi, uh how do you see this one
8: well a couple things, first of all in the clip package uh, the, the, the one clip or the one bit that wasn't included were the comments from Pierre Polyev also talking about and calling on uh, Justin Trudeau not to play the politics of division and to try and play the politics of unity. Uh, I I would just sort of push back on that a little bit and say both parties have indulged in, exacerbated and really intensified not only identity politics but the politics of division in the political Canadian landscape today. So, you know, there's a little bit of a a baloney factor there. But let's bring it back to Justin Trudeau. Let's bring it back to, to Rob Oliphant. I don't know necessarily that his, his uh, Mr. Oliphant's position now as a parliamentary secretary is tenable given that, you know, there is supposed to be something called cabinet unity and, and that should indeed include uh, the the next level down of parliamentary secretaries. That said Uh, This is an issue when we talk about the utility of politics and and the Liberals being down 20 points in the polls. Uh, This is a situation, too, where the Liberal Party is divided under its own base. It's not just the caucus. It's the base on the issue of continuing to fund, uh, Anra, our polling from... I think it was earlier this week, continues to show that you've got a tilt where just about half of Liberal Party voters say that that should continue, although just under half say no, it should be suspended. It's a far harder road politically for the Liberals to walk than any other party. The conservatives and the conservative base are almost entirely in lockstep and aligned on a lot of these issues, including suspending funding. Uh, the vast majority of NDP voters say that it should continue. It's not just a matter of caucus management. It's also a matter, I think, of the of the party politically at this stage, uh, trying to basically save its own diverse. Uh, voting diasporas. It's got uh, a Muslim bloc of voters that it cannot af- afford to alienate. It's got long-time established, committed, fundraising Jewish voters that it cannot afford to alienate. Uh, does this any of this make for serious o- or coherent foreign policy? No. However, it uh, This isn't going to be a voting issue uh, in terms of taking. What I mean by that is taking a stand one way or the other only serves to punish the liberals politically. So this let's, let's talk about it, let's have differing and diverse views and by the way Canadians do have profoundly diverse and complicated views on this issue, the polling is very clear on that too. So if anything, the Liberal stance on this, while to the world may look like gobbledygook and indeed Canadians do see it that way, uh, internally it is holding up a mirror back to Canadian society that really reflects how much people are wrestling with these issues.
0: So, so, Jono, uh, on that, right, um, y- you can see the division in, in, in big cities and with the protests and and, and, and the accusations back and forth, right, and, and and the hurt and the pain on it. How do they manage this better as a government? When you have the Perlsec to the minister disagreeing with the positions articulated by the minister and by the prime minister, and as you sort of suggested in your answer, satisfying nobody with this, the worst spot to be in politics sort of in the middle uh, of of an almost binary issue
3: listen <laughs> when you're in the middle there are definite advantages it's, it obviously you can attract on a on a plethora of issues that are um not as emotionally divisive you could probably attract more voters and that's why you have generally historically a larger base or potential pool of voters for the liberals but when you have an emotionally charged issue like this um you know i i, I you've seen You've seen major Muslim groups announce that that's it. They're, they, they even canceled a meeting with the prime minister an hour or two right. before. You've had major Jewish groups come out very angry about different statements over the last four months. So, you know, in terms of the voters, are they represented by these groups? To an extent, yes. And I think that the liberals may have lost some of these voters. The question is... Can they keep the majority of their voters that you know are still hanging around uh, uh, solidly there by having a position that is? Sorry, Shachi, I'm going to try to use the word gobbledygook. I don't know <laughs> if I got it. Um, you did it. Basically, close enough. By doing that, you know the lack of taking a leadership stance, taking a stance that may offend some people, but at least you have a strong position. The people who are indifferent to this subject may at least respect that you're taking a strong stance and by taking no stance it's not only the people who are mostly emotionally connected to this but i think everybody starts to feel annoyed alienated because they don't even know what it stands for
0: sorry james uh your turn now you, you wanted
3: know, to try to answer it that no, what
2: was just said, he got to exactly the right point there at the end, right? Which was that the, the, the problem, I think, with all of this in the calculus is that, frankly, it's too much politics. This this calculus of this cohort, that cohort, this group, this map, what about Montreal, what about Toronto, what about this group and that group? When a, when a government is on its heels and it's way down in the polls and you start doing, you know, the overlays of the maps and the calculus and the demographic impact of your positions, this is where you start losing everybody because everybody thinks everything is based on a political map. Rather than on, on a matter of the heart and the soul, and I think a lot of Canadians have a lot of views on this, and, and yes, they can be in, at intense at times. But I think Canadians respect governments that have clarity of their moral position and their views, and they articulate it concisely and consistently. That matters more than this this game, the games that are being played. What I was going to jump in on though was the, the first part of your question, David, which was, you know, it, it's untenable for a minister to have a parliamentary. You know, I, I was a minister of multiple portfolios, had lots of different parliamentary secretaries. If I was the minister of official, when I was minister of official languages, if my parliamentary secretary was saying, you know, the, the official languages act is out of date, and we should co- totally revamp it, because it's just completely out of step with the diversity of Canada. If I'm the minister of official languages, I think I have a problem with my, that person being my parliamentary secretary, and I need to have a conversation with the prime minister. So, so Minister Jolie and Mr. Oliphant need to have a coming to coming to, to to Jesus' moment of clarity here about where they're at in terms of their partnership and the leadership of this government's position on foreign affairs and how they express it to the world. This is untenable. Andrew,
0: is it all politics, do you think, with the liberals, or are they just genuinely deeply conflicted by this, by being horrified by Hamas, but also looking at uh, a nearly 30,000 person death toll now in Gaza, uh, by some estimates, and, and being also troubled by that, because like, we're seeing France, we're seeing the United Kingdom, we're seeing the United States, all sort of walking this line, while maybe also being more more uh, clear in their support for Israel, I think, in some of the language, but also deeply troubled by what the Netanyahu government is doing here.
7: Yeah, it's interesting that both uh, the UK, France, uh, the US, are all taking not entirely dissimilar positions to what the Prime Minister was laying out today, but they seem to be doing it in a way that, that looks more coherent, and maybe that's, we're not mm-hmm. following the local politics uh, in those countries as closely to understand what the second conversations are. This just seems like it, it is very chaotic, that it's a mess, uh, that is being made up at the last minute, as opposed to really driving towards something. Now, I, do, I do think that the Prime Minister's comments today, where he was outlining the work that he's doing with uh, various world leaders, what they're pushing towards, finally towards, you know, uh, uh, whether it's workable or not, uh, some solutions uh, in the Middle East, uh, you know, that has a sense of coherence to it that we've not otherwise seen to date. And, you know, this is where I think people are are really unclear as to, you know, are they speaking to various constituencies based on, you know, what they're trying to curry vote on? Is it deeply held personal views of MPs that are are carrying the day? Or is there an actual strategy here in in place? And that's the, um, I think that's really something where the, Obviously, the Prime Minister has lost control of the caucus and lost control of the narrative. Can he get that back or not? I don't know. But right now, I think people really are wondering, uh, you know, just what's going on.
0: Okay, Shachi, a uh, quick last word f- uh, to you, and then we got to take a break.
8: Uh, quickly, then, what I'll talk about is um, just how, in some ways... it it is regrettable that we aren't used to hearing from individual MPs, regardless of party stripe, regardless of issue, enough in terms of their own beliefs and where they stand. So you have these situations where you're saying one thing quietly and one thing out loud. I think that is uh, just my take on it, uh, the result of a decades-long series of of, of really sort of uh, atmosphere within Parliament where backbenchers and and MPs are, are not necessarily free to speak their mind especially if they have cabinet ambitions and I think moments like this give us a a whoa like oh so and so said that Um, and beyond the context of the way this government is is handling the issue or not handling the issue I think it also sort of speaks to uh, maybe we need to get used to hearing people saying whatever it is they want to say and judging them for those comments so we don't have these flip flops.
0: Okay. The leader of the Bloc Québécois wants an independent inquiry into the company at the heart of the auditor general's scathing report on the poorly managed ArriveCan app.
6: To go to GC Strategies, open everything that's to be open in there. Look at who they have given contract or subcontracts to, and follow the money.
1: I believe that review, both at CBSA and at Public Safety and at PSBC, is taking place now. Plus, there are other processes and investigations taking place to ensure that when where rules were broken, people were held to account.
0: All parties want more information on GC Strategies' contracts with the federal government, but following the money, as the Auditor General pointed out, is not straightforward. La Presse reported yesterday nearly $258 million in contracts had gone to this small Ottawa firm. And our Radio Canada colleagues confirmed $239 million in contracts were posted on the government's public disclosure website. But today, the government said some of those posted contracts overlapped or or were duplicated and the actual value of contracts awarded to the firm is still unknown. So, clear as mud. James, like, I, I don't actually know how much money uh, GC Strategies got, and neither does Bill Blair. I mean, were you surprised uh, to hear him say that uh, none of this contracting information made it to him, even though he was one of the ministers who announced uh, the Arrive Can app?
2: It's pretty staggering, particularly because his portfolio is not considered a a grant issuing portfolio. Uh, Public safety is not. When when I was Minister of Canadian Heritage, we lowered the. There's a threshold amount that would go through the minister's office to be seen for the minister's office to get their hands on. Now, sometimes ministers like to keep that threshold of contracting that's done by the department high, so the minister doesn't see it, so they're not culpable if something isn't done effectively or what have you. I lowered mine all the way down to as far as possible, all the way down to five thousand dollars. So anything less than Five thousand dollars, so a small contract for mm. some translation services or whatever. But I saw everything, and I hired extra staffers to see everything because I wanted to see everything. I, I, frankly, I wanted the ball. I wanted the accountability. I wanted to know what my department was doing because I know I knew that my department was under heavy scrutiny by my own party and by others when I was at Heritage. So you should want to have the ball. The fact that this amount of money. That, you know over a quarter a billion dollars of contracting to a firm that's so small you know operating out of a basement that doesn't have this expertise uh, that this was allowed to pass through and it only got caught because the Auditor General with her limited budget chose to choose to choose this particular file to, to examine it shows that when the government of Canada goes from spending about 350 billion dollars per year now they're spending they will be spending 550 billion dollars per year it's grown massively just in the past five years that when you have that amount of of ballooning of the size of the government of Canada, uh, hundreds of, literally hundreds of billions of dollars more in new federal government spending, that the opportunities for abuse, for waste, for fraud, for criminal activity, it only multiplies. And so therefore the policing powers inside government and now outside government are going to have to be triggered in order to pursue this particular contract and the actors who are associated with it. Because if you're if you're guilty of one, you're probably guilty of more than one.
0: Yeah, Andrew, I mean, we, we don't really know uh, what, what the money value is. It's somewhere between like $56 million and $250 million, and we don't know when the government's going to be able to give us clarity on that, because we've been asking for this for a day or so now. Uh, I'm shocked there's not a database that just tells you this, and why there's duplication and public disclosure, what's the value of it, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, Minister Blair didn't know. It seems like the President of CBSA may not have known, and the auditor general says there's not a heck of a lot of paperwork in there to even tell us where things went and, and what exactly happened. I mean, I mean what, what's your take on, on this and, and what it says about how the CBSA in particular was, was is or was being run?
7: Well, c- certainly this doesn't smell right. I mean, this just does not pass the you know the sniff test in terms of was the uh, was this handled properly or not? Uh, I'm not sure that it needs to go through a uh, you know inquiry. I think it probably has to have some kind of police investigation at this point uh, into it uh, to see whether, in fact, there is anything more uh, substantial that should be followed up on this. I think the other piece so we need to remember is, let's go back in time as to when this uh, arrive cam was being developed. It was really at the height of the pandemic. Yes, it was supposedly on the books before, but it was being brought in to deal with a number of other uh, issues that were problems at the border at the time. It appears that there just was no oversight. Now, whether that's ministers were focused on other issues, there were certainly many other issues to focus on that time. Whether bureaucrats were giving the ministers confidence that the file was well managed, but in fact were uh, not themselves, or were not in a position to give that, I think is a legitimate question. Something's broken down in here. Uh, it seems like uh, it's not just a, um, a simple measure. This uh, seems like a, you know, some kind of concerted effort to uh, obfusify what the uh, Uh, the contracts look like and that obviously has to be investigated i suspect the ministers are every bit as much uh, interested in that as ordinary canadians
0: Yeah, shachi it's uh look we don't know where this is going to go but you know two very senior civil servants have been suspended without pay i mean to see an adm and director general level employees uh, put on uh, unpaid leave is is a rare thing in my limited experience here uh how do you think this is playing with the broader public here
8: so this is really interesting in terms of the contrast to the the issue we were discussing before the break. Uh, when you're, you know, this is the difference between uh, issues that are occurring overseas and and don't seem to have any good easy answers versus an issue of basic government competence. And on this issue, uh, there certain, certainly seems to be a, a real lack of basic government competence. And it's the type of thing that drives Canadian voters crazy. The the notion that money has been lost or poorly spent or profligately spent in a way that wasn't responsible and was done without oversight, this is the stuff that drives Canadian voters absolutely nuts. And to Andrew's point, you know, yes, there was a period post-pandemic where a lot of snafus and a lot of mistakes made in the heat of the moment, but with the best of intentions, i.e. vaccine procurement or relief checks going out to people who shouldn't have received them. People would say, look, there was a lot going on and government was acting to protect as many people as well as possible, as quickly as possible. This one, though, just sounds like, uh, you know, uh, people rolled up their sleeves, some bad folks may have rolled up their sleeves and said, aha, how do we get in on the chaos? And really the fact that, again, at at, at that high a level uh, in in the bureaucratic service, people who are very responsible but also very intelligent and generally very uh, responsible Professional, you know they know what their jobs are. Uh, Nobody seems to be able to explain this massively problematic, and it will be one of those things that that the that the government uh, may wear not only today politically, but tomorrow and into an election period. It 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 may come back to haunt them.
0: Yeah, I I mean, look, Jonathan, the 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 auditor general uh, got as far as she could. The RCMP is looking into it. CBSA has done a report that has not been made public, Uh, and you know there there were moments during COVID where the, the prime minister stood in front of the country said, "We're rolling out." CERB. We know some people are going to abuse this. We've made the decision, we've accepted the risk, and we're explaining it up front, and that's a choice they made because of the emergency consideration. This is something completely different in that we don't exactly know what happened, but the basic you know, components of you know uh, of the job in the civil service seem to have either been ignored, completely disregarded, or, or just not performed. So, there's no political connection in this yet. Does that help the liberals? It seems right now, based on the AG, it's all in the bureaucracy. Or does that not matter?
3: Well, I think that all four parties, including the government, including the liberals, have criticize this contract and sort of say there are a lot of questions to be answered mm-hmm. but the only difference with the liberals is there's a degree of a lack of outrage because the other parties seem outraged and Justin Trudeau last week about Bell layoffs was outraged and he was pissed off I think right. was the term he used well I think it would help if they showed and demonstrated a little outrage I'm outraged We're, this isn't like it's not possible that this contract was given and people didn't line their pockets—it's not possible. The, the, it went from something that was in the tens of thousands of dollars into the tens of millions of dollars. So the CBSA president says he didn't see it. I mean, how could Bill Blair have seen it if CBSA yeah. president didn't see it? Uh, I agree with James that you have thresholds and you have to approve certain things. In this case, it seems like something criminal happened. Now I'm not going to make accusations. That's what the police are there to do. But. It, if you like, I just can't believe it doesn't pass the smell test. I can't believe that something criminal and a seriously criminal um, act was committed by people on the inside with this company. You know, and you know we need to see arrests. I think is for what will make people somewhat satisfied that this is being dealt with properly. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just, I'm incredulous, mean, it it's unbelievable that this amount of money was spent on an app. I have no problem with the app, I used it, I never had any problem with it when I traveled. It's that the amount of money, just somebody abused somewhere in the system, and I, I'll just make quick reference to last week's uh, committee hearing where you had people from three of the four parties who, while in the middle of the committee hearings on this, cut them off, and somebody even referred to what the evidence they had seen as scary. Um, So, there's obviously something else going on, and I'm willing to let the police investigate, the RCMP investigate, but to allow the CBSA to investigate itself, I think it's lost the right to do that, and I think you need external bodies to come in. A parliamentary inquiry, we can talk about other ones and how they become a circus. What I would like to know is, is a serious investigation happening? Are they interviewing people? Are there witnesses? And are they aiming to arrest people if it's proven that they'd stolen things? Yeah, stolen money,
0: stolen millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, look, we we don't know where that's going to go, and and you know, if you do get a confidential report, James, from a, an arms-length agency that maybe outlines potential criminality, I I guess you couldn't proceed with a committee hearing in public on that because you know uh, uh, it's potentially fraught. There, I, you'd need to go in camera or find some way to deal with it. But help me out as a minister. You talked about when you were at Heritage and how you lowered the uh, the reporting for a contract. So you had agencies that you were responsible for as a minister, like the CBC, for example. How does that work with something like the CBSA and public safety or the Public Health Agency of Canada and the health minister? Do they send things in to the minister's
2: office? Crowns work on their own, but as a minister, if you're if you're if you're granting contracts and you're and you're doing expenditures, you can set the signing authority. You can either hand it over to your department, and you can set the threshold that any contract larger than say twenty five thousand dollars, the department will, the department will have to have my sign off as a, of it as well as a minister, or you can set that threshold. Mm-hmm. So anything below that, the department can just run with it and do. It. Because at a, at a certain scale, it just becomes you know it, it becomes impossible, and then stuff doesn't get considered, and then groups don't get their funding, and stuff doesn't work right but as I said in, in my office we just hired extra staffers and we went through everything all the way down to five thousand dollars and so we had thousands and thousands of grant applications and we, we we approved everything that was supposed to be approved and there were there was no problem in the there was no backlog that was built up and so that's that that should be done here with in terms of go forward if I'm the minister responsible for this now uh, i would ha- I would do something like have have a forensic audit going on in partnership with the, with the auditor general and that would hire two accounting firms bring in ey bring in deloitte side silo them so they don't talk to each other have them do their own audit by themselves siloed from public scrutiny give them a timeline have them do it by say the end of june of this year have them report to you at the exact same time and have them give you their analysis of what happened exactly and then those results you turn them over to the rcmp and you make what you're turning over to the rcmp public in terms of what those audits found out that's how you take hold of this and you take control and you drag into the sunlight the facts of what happened here and you hold people accountable if you don't do that. I promised the Liberal government that the Conservatives will be talking about this every day from now into the next election campaign because this goes to the heart of the competence of the capacity of the government. A quarter of a billion dollars for an app that should cost tens of thousands of dollars well. to, to make with a like, it's it's just, it speaks for itself in terms of gross incompetence of a scale that most people can understand, $250 million, but they don't understand how it can happen.
0: Well, look, the, the 250, if that is the number, because that's the high end of it, and there's some duplication of that, so it'll work down. That's not all for a RiveCAN. That's the total value of contracts for that company, you know, wh- whatever it lands at for a variety of things. So I, I just want to make, make that clear to make- not, not to undermine your point, but just for a, a bit but, of precision there. But that
2: makes it worse because this was, this was clearly due diligence didn't, didn't happen. The reporting didn't happen. So it makes it worse. I'm glad my colleague on the panel though had a good time with the app for a quarter of a billion dollars. Oh, we had a great time <laughs> with that app.
0: Well, uh, <laughs> Shashi, just uh, to, to Jonathan's point uh, that everyone looks outraged about it except the government. How do you think uh, Canadians look at that, you know, like that they they have not matched that sort of emotional response uh, that we're seeing from the opposition in terms of being upset by this?
8: At the height of the passport uh, crisis of the summer of 2022, 46% of Canadians said that they had sought a a service from the federal government in the last six months and that they were dissatisfied with it. There's very little, frankly, that the federal government does in terms of frontline retail services. ArriveCap was one of them. Um, uh, ArriveCAN app, rather. So, again, it, it, it... to James's point, this speaks to and underscores weakness on two fronts. It speaks to where did the money go? Why don't you know how much there was? What happened with it? And even if it was the decision or arm's length under under um, an agency or a bureaucratic department, Again, we know that at the most, most senior levels, uh, bureaucrats are not doing the work on behalf of or for politicians in terms of carrying their political water. You know, that the, the old f- phrase is, um, what is it, f- James, fearless uh, advice and then loyal adaptation or, or operation. But the point is, uh, those people are people that if you don't, if you're not working with them closely as a minister and, and you don't have confidence in them, then some of this is on you. So there is the service delivery aspect of this. There is also the missing money part of this. And, uh, and as I say, uh, this is something that is, is pretty basic in terms of the narrative. It's an easy dunk for the opposition as to why the Liberals didn't prevent it or why they aren't doing more to fix and prevent it in the future or at least uh, counter that, that perception.
0: Okay, Andrew, uh, we're just about out of time and give you a quick last word.
7: Yeah, look, it, it's quite possible that they were just lied to. And I think that we should yeah. put that, at, you know, right at the very front, yeah. that the systems were perhaps adequate, but if somebody has criminal intent, that they're going to work around that. And it's quite <coughs> possible that the Liberal ministers were simply lied to. So you could hire, uh, you know, another hundred bureaucrats to review every contract, I guess, if you wanted to, as James has suggested. I don't know if that's good value for money for the taxpayers. but. You know, this is why this needs to be turned over, not to the accounting firms. I think to the you know the the commercial crimes division of the RCMP needs to take a look at that. Let's get that clarity that that's the level that of seriousness that this government is going to face. That's about the only way I see that they're going to avoid a political uh, damage on this, uh, and it may very well be much closer to actually what happened.
2: Okay, they've uh, hired the extra bureaucrats. The size of government has gone up thirty one percent, and the scrutiny isn't there. And but to your point, Andrew, I mean all of this makes it. Worse, and if they've been lied to, then if, if, if contracting budgets, if there's no ceiling on them, and you don't scrutinize, why is the ceiling yeah. not been hit, and why do you need more money to build an app? Wh- where's the wh- who's policing the police in this? Who's who's observing and implementing the contract faithfully? And if you, people say, well, you have to have trusted, faithful public servants, well, we hired thirty one percent more of them, and it got worse. And what was supposed to be a modest contract blew into quarter of a billion dollars. So, anyway, more yeah, questions? Look,
7: I think it's egregious too, but
2: the government's it- in deep on it.
7: Sure. I think it's egregious, too. The question is now, what do we do with it? Yes, they've got to learn going forward. If there needs to be process reform, they need to do it. If it is, in fact, criminal, then let's get on with that, uh, that investigation and let's understand where that's going to lead us.
0: Okay. Uh, gang, obviously a lot more to talk about. I, I'm sure we'll talk about this on, on a future uh, panel. Thanks so much, gang. The Power Panel, Jonathan Kalis, James Moore, Andrew Thompson, and Shachi Curl.
7: Thanks, gang. Thanks, David.
0: That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.